All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, this morning, we're going to start our study of Philippians. Uh, as I mentioned, if you haven't gotten a book like this from the back, I recommend you do that. Um, this is primarily just the text of Philippians from the net version with enough space for you to take notes in the margins, but then also kind of in line as well, if, if that's helpful. Um, this class is going to be um, a bit of an inductive style. Um, generally, the flow of our classes are going to be kind of roughly the same. Um, so I kind of want to go through that flow with you so you know what to expect, because I'm going to expect a good deal of you. So I want you to be prepared for that. So generally, our class will flow with, in the beginning of the class, we're going to read a largish section of the book. Conveniently, Philippians is four chapters, so if we really wanted to, we could read it every class. We're not going to do that, but on average, we'll start most of our classes reading at minimum one chapter, and we may read two chapters uh, many times, and then we'll study in that class period a subsection uh, of that, that reading. We'll do the reading. Generally, I'll have some comments. I may have a question uh, for you all. And then, as a group, we'll do some, some discussion about what you see in the text. Um, and so, I'm mentioning that because I want everyone to be prepared that a good deal of the expectation of this class is that there is participation. I don't want you to be surprised by that. And if you don't talk, I'm going to stand here silently. I might sip my water, um, read my own notes, but I'll wait for you. So. Um, be ready for that uh, as we go. A few goals as we study. Um, first, we want to focus on the text that we're studying. Um, and so when we're in Philippians, we're going to study Philippians. That doesn't mean we're not going to go anywhere else or you can't make comments about other chapters or other, other books. But I think sometimes when we study, we can accidentally spend more time outside of the text that we're working on than inside the text. And so our first goal always will be to talk about the text that we read first. Um, there are some passages in Philippians that are quotations of um, some Old Testament sections. So of course we would include all of that together, right? That's all part of the text. So we talk about those things together before we kind of go on excursions to other epistles or, or things like that to, to have cross-references and that sort of thing. Um, second, I want to ask everyone that we approach the text like you haven't studied it before first. So um, when I ask questions, you may find that I ask questions that sound stupid because you're like, I've studied this for 20 years. Of course we know the answer to this question. Our goal here is to approach the text um, in a fresh way in the beginning so that we can really focus on what did the text mean to the Philippians when they received it. What, it, what did it mean to, from Paul, even though we haven't talked about who the author is yet, I'll give you that one. Um, when Paul wrote it, what did it mean to him? Um, and then we'll kind of go from there. Once we've understood ideally what it meant for them, we'll start kind of getting closer and closer to us and ideally making applications to us after we've understood um, what it meant for the Philippians. Um, and our goal here is we're going to kind of build, right? So we're going to um, work on kind of our, we're going to build our own intro this week. We're going to spend some time next week and the week after understanding the broad themes of the book, building a summary of the book, 
and then we'll start going more in depth, like verse by verse, sort of early section by section sort of study. So before we do anything else, we're going to read the book together. Um, I will be fluctuating between um, the, the text that's used in this workbook, um, which is the net version. Uh, in some classes, I'll use my ESV. I don't have a plan for when I'm going to switch. I just plan to kind of do that interchangeably. Um, one note, if you like this text where you have lots of room to take notes, but you would prefer, prefer it to be loose leaf so you can put it in a notebook or something, if you'll go to inclinemyheart.org, you can download those yourself and print them out. Um, but I bought enough of these that everyone can have a, a text like this if, if that's your preference. Um, all right, so let's read. We're going to read the whole book right now. Um, and um, at this point, if you want to use a pencil or a pen and circle some things that you see, you're welcome to do that. Um, but we're going to do some more of that in class today. So you don't have to feel like we got to capture notes right now. You'll have more time to do that in a little bit. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is right for me to think this about all of you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners in God's grace together with me. For God is my witness, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and in every kind of insight, so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so from love because they know that I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. What is the result? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My confident hope is that I will in no way be ashamed, but that with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. 
Now, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean productive work for me. Yet, I don't know which I prefer. I feel torn between the two because I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more vital for your sake that I remain in the body. And since I'm sure of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith, so that what you can be proud of may increase because of me in Christ Jesus when I come back to you. Only conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for Him. Since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face, and now hear that I am facing. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit, and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude to one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. By looking like other men and by sharing in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my dear friends, just as you always just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society." in which you shine as lights in the world by holding on to the word of life so that on the day of Christ I will have a reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice together with all of you. And in the same way, you also should be glad and rejoice together with me. Now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by hearing news about you. For there is no one here like him who readily demonstrates his deep concern for you. 
Others are busy with their own concerns, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his qualifications. That like a son working with his father, he served me in advancing the gospel. So I hope to send him as soon as I know more about my situation. Though I am confident in the Lord that I too will be coming to see you soon. But for now, I have considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. For he is my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to me in my need. Indeed, he greatly missed all of you and was distressed because you heard that he had been ill. In fact, he became so ill that he nearly died. But God showed mercy to him, and not, only, and not to him only, but also to me, so that I would not have grief on top of grief. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you can rejoice and I can be free from anxiety. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, since it was because of the work of Christ that he almost died. He risked his life so that he could make up for your inability to serve me. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exult in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials. Though mine are too, mine too are significant. If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. But these assets I've come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord from whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not because of my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by the way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know Him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. And so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this, that is, I have not already been perfected, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to attain this. Instead, I am single-minded, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching out for the things that are ahead. With this goal in mind, I strive for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let those of us who are perfect embrace this point of view. If you think otherwise, God will reveal to you the error of your ways. Nevertheless, let us live up to the standard that we have already attained. Be imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and watch carefully those who are living this way, just as you have us as an example. 
For many live, about whom I have often told you, and now with tears I tell you they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, they exult in their shame, and they think about earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we also eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of His glorious body by means of that power by which He is able to subject all things to Himself. So then, my brothers and sisters, dear friends whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I say also to you, true companion, help them. They have struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement and my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And what you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I have great joy in the Lord. Now at last you have again expressed your concern for me. Now I know you were concerned before but had no opportunity to do anything. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in any circumstance. I have experienced times of need and times of abundance. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of contentment. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing... I am able to do all things to the one who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you did well to share with me in my trouble. And as you Philippians know, at the beginning of my gospel ministry, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in this matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, on more than one occasion, you sent something for my need. I do not say this because I am seeking a gift. Rather, I seek the credit that abounds to your account. For I have received everything, and I have plenty. I have all I need, because I received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, very pleasing to God. And my God will supply your every need according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. May glory be given to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Give greetings to all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers with me here send greetings. All the saints greet you, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So that took 16 minutes. So if you're ever kind of wondering, should I just read half a chapter or a whole chapter just read the whole book. Like Philippians is not so long that you can't read it um, in one sitting quite easily. I would also encourage you to consider reading it aloud to yourself. Um, it is a book filled 
with emotion from Paul. And so I think sometimes when we just read silently in our own brain, we may not see where the, the beauty of the poetry and the language builds to talk especially about the relationship between Paul and the Philippians. He calls them his crown, talks about great affection for them. And he says it in, in amazing ways um, that I, I think are best expressed when read aloud. That, that may be some of my own personal like speech and debate history talking, but I think, I think the written word deserves to be read aloud uh, frequently. So as we begin our study, really we need to do two things. First, we need to build out an intro, what, what lots of times teachers would call an intro. Um, and then we need to identify high-level themes of the book. And then, really there's a third thing, once we've done those two things, we'll be able to build some general summaries of what the book is about, put a framework around the book a little bit before we start studying it in depth. Often teachers do these things for you. That's a lot of work for me to do for you. So I'm going to ask you to help me to do that together. Um, so as you think about an intro, all of us have been in Bible classes for much of our life. If you are a visitor here and that's not true for a year, you've been in literature classes at some point probably. So what are the sorts of things that are generally included in like a teacher's introduction to a work? Yeah, so who's the letter from? We might say who's the author of the letter or the work. Great, what else? All right, so that it's a letter, which means... The style of writing. Yeah, so the fact that it's a letter would tell you that there's a style to the writing. If there's an author, there has to be a, a recipient, right? So author and audience, the who that are kind of key to the book as well as there's often some who's that surround that, right? There's the two primary kind of people, the author and the audience, but then there's also other characters uh, in the work as well. Yeah, a lot of references to other people. So you might want to know who some of those people are or go look for other places to understand that. Um, what else would we generally want to know in the introduction to a book so that we can kind of know what we're thinking about? All right, so when it was written, and why would we want to know that, David Lee? Well, he says he's in, he's in prison. We're not talking about that yet. We're just talking about what you would say. Yeah, so historical context, right? So you're, you want to maybe know when uh, in history, but you also might just want to know when for the author and the audience, like related to their own lives or their own work. Like when was this written? Um, not just generally, it was written in, you know, whatever, 68 BC, you know, whatever. Yeah, placing the book in the history of the broad world is helpful, and placing it in the history of these specific people is also important. What else? Yes. All right, so you want to know about the city of Philippi, you want to know why, like how did this get started, where are the roots, where are the beginnings? Yeah. And then you also, you go ahead, Mark. Okay, so 
Um, different from like just literature generally, when we are studying a book of the Bible, we want to understand how does this book and what it has to say fit in with the message of the gospel, the way Christ works in the lives of these people, and so on. What else? There's at least one that I know that's been left out. What'd you say? Okay, so the geography, that might be related to kind of what Barry was talking about with like, what are some details about the city you might want to know? Yeah. Um, the book is going to contain some themes or issues. So you might want to understand what those themes and issues are uh, as well. So how, when we read, are we going to come to understand this? I think there's three primary ways. So when we read a book and we're going to gain this sort of information that we just talked about, in summary, you could say like the who, what, when, where, why, right? From like all of our eighth grade class. How, when you read a book, do you determine who, what, when, where, why sort of stuff? The introduction? Yeah, so, yeah, so give, give us an example. If you just look at verse 1, Allison, what is something that we learn? All right, so Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to the, those in Christ Jesus in Philippi. All right, so those are direct statements. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to theorize. It is a direct statement. Who it is, who it's from, all those sorts of things. What else? A direct statement. There's two other ways to get information, really. So, so Barry said examples that Paul would give. Um, I'm going to call that I'm going to call that inferences often. So when you're reading something, an author might say, um, make, make a statement that you don't really, you don't have the full picture, so you kind of have to infer what's going on. It's like, uh, I think halfway through chapter two, um, Paul said, I wrote, to you, I wrote these things to you bef about these things to you before. What can you infer from that? There was another letter, but we don't have the other letter. <laughs> as far as I know, Barry may know where it is. I don't know where it is. Um, so, so, you, so that's an example where you infer something. It's, it's not, sometimes these things are so small and so natural that we don't think about it as an inference. But I think it's really important to really delve into inferences because they are key to how we understand books and how we understand much of life. Um, when we're, when we're reading. And then there's a, third, there's a third way we can get information. And that's outside the book. So I might call that ancillary information. Um, from a scriptural standpoint, you could look in other books for that information, right? Other books that reference the Philippian Christians or other books that Paul about, talk about Paul's imprisonment, for example. Um, or that's where you might go to history. And you might go pull... You know, someone's works like Josephus and go read like, what does what a historian who's unrelated to the Bible say about it? Or you might look at geography and look at a map. So these three ways of gaining information, 
direct statements, ancillary information, and inferences are really how we get information about what we're studying. So I will kind of take a pause and say, if you were in my James class last year, you're like, this sounds really familiar. That's because it's word for word. Like I copied it from those notes and put it in these notes, which makes me disappointed that more people didn't get the three. <laughs> What'd you say? You weren't here. What? Made a ton of comments in James. Oh yeah, not that first class. Um, so I want us to practice this skill really quick. So if you would look down at 12 verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever, dare to speak the word fearlessly. There's a couple direct statements. Like there's no, you don't have to wonder about what it means or go look somewhere else. What, is, what are those do you see? Paul's in prison, right? If you only read verse 12, if verse 12 was the only thing you had, you wouldn't actually know that, right? Because you just he's got a situation. I don't know what the situation is. But then in verse 13, he tells you, I am in prison, right? That's a direct statement. Um, there's at least one more direct statement that, that you should take note of. Yeah, so the imperial guard knows that he's there for Christ. That's pretty impressive, right? So that's a dir those are two direct statements. What inferences can you make from these three verses? There's at least two, I think. Somebody had to teach them or tell them. Yes, so someone had to teach them. And who can we infer that that is? We can infer it's Paul, because he says it happens because he's there, but he doesn't say, I taught them. He just says that they learned. So it's reasonable to think that it's Paul. And you could go into some other verses in this passage, in this chapter, kind of like ancillary information, even though it's in the book. Like, who, what other names do we know were there besides Paul? Paphroditus could have been one of them. There's at least two others. What? Luke, but does he say that here? So you're getting, you're getting even more ancillary. <laughs> Timothy? I think you could also say Clement, perhaps, who we don't actually know a bunch about Clement, but he's mentioned here. Right? So that's how you can kind of use inferences and ancillary information to start kind of building your own intro to the book. Um, there's at least one more inference we should make. I'll give you a hint. What'd you say? I said people chickens about talking about Christ. All right. So that is an inference that we can make. People are now talking about Christ because they have seen what Paul has gone through, right? Uh, I think there's another one that feels really simple. Where is Paul? You said not Philippi. Great. Why do you say he's in Rome? Yeah, so it's the imperial guard. It's the guard. It's the guard that guards Caesar or the Caesar at the time, and so it's reasonable to think that he's in Rome. Now, it is fair to note that the imperial guard actually does activity throughout the the um, the, the empire, but for the most part, 
they are focused in Rome. And then there's information in the rest of the book that could help you believe that it really is in Rome. And what's that? Caesar's household is mentioned and that, that Paul taught them or that they at least are, there are Christians in Caesar's household so we can infer that Paul is the one that taught them. All right, so that's practice. So now we want to do that for chapter one. Um, oh, there's one really big piece of ancillary info that we could go get if we wanted to. Why is Paul in Rome? Doesn't, does, we, we don't know why Paul is in prison, really, from, from Philippians. So we'd have to go elsewhere. Where would you go to learn that? You go to Acts. Right. So that's how you know, we start to see hints and, and things like that, inference we can make and start to say, like, well, that's a question I should know how to answer. That's a cross-reference I should write in my Bible. As I should refer, you know, in my Bible, I should know, I should have a reference back to Acts where Paul is going through his trial process, for example, and getting kind of slowly moved to Rome. All right, let's do this for chapter one. Um, uh, so what can we tell about the author and the audience from chapter one? Yeah, the author's the author is Paul and who? Timothy. I think that's something we often overlook is that Paul does not solely say this book is from him. We never I've never actually heard someone say Timothy's letter to the Philippians, but from the author's standpoint, it's from both of them. It's kind of interesting. So Michelle's question is does that mean he is a co-author or a scribe? Doesn't tell us. Since he says, and Timothy, I would think he's more than a scribe. That's my personal uh, opinion. But since it only tells us and, you could form a completely different opinion. Um, all right. What do we know about the audience? That they're familiar with the structure means kind of a in-depth knowledge of the group. Okay, so there's some relationship between the author and the audience, between Paul and the Philippians, and you can see that throughout even chapter 1. What else, what else do we know about this group in Philippi, this church? Well, he's the elders. He's elders. It's interesting to me that he kind of greets them almost separately. Um... I don't have any theories as to why that is, but that's not what we're doing right now anyway. We're talking about intro stuff. So let's, let's kind of move a little further. What can we tell about Paul's relationship with these saints? Okay, so we had to know them to remember them. Great. What else can we tell about the relationship? Uh, where in Burton chapter 1 could you maybe point out an example of that? There's a few. Yeah, so verse 8 tells us that. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
This is not that he met them a single time on his way through town and went on his way. He longs for them. Uh, how long was the relationship? Can't tell exactly. So assuming from the first day that he taught them, we'd have to go to Acts to understand that more, which we're going to do that hopefully next week. Um, I would just say it's a long-standing relationship because the way he talks about it infers length of time. So like in verse 4 and 5, I always pray with you, enjoy my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of one thing, the one who began a good work in you. He talks about beginning and from the first day. That means it wasn't yesterday. <laughs> it means it probably wasn't last year. Right? This implies the passage of, a time, of time and something where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so I don't know exactly how long it was, but it was not short. It does not in any way feel short. What are you going to say? Yeah, so Darlene's comment was the fact that they have overseers and deacons implies this group has had time to mature. If we use other passages and we know some things in our brain, Paul taught them when he was in Philippi. So there's been enough time that has passed that they now have deacons and overseers. So that also gives us some idea of time. This is not short. Um, Paul has known these brethren for a while. All right, um, and then the, the last one I'll mention about Paul and their relationship. He uses really powerful words when he talks about it. You see any examples of that? He does not say, I really like you, or I really want to see you. You're nice people. I long for you. He longs for them. That is not a, a, a simple idea. Yeah, Joshua. In uh, chapter 1, in verse 10, towards the end of the chapter, he's just so concerned about these Christians that he doesn't know whether to just give up and die and be with Christ or stay on earth and continue to strengthen them. Yeah, so he, his, his relationship is so in depth that he's, he's torn between if he wants to be with Christ or with them. A pretty strong relationship. He also uses words like yearn. I yearn for you. I think one of the keys to understanding this book is to make certain that we put the things at the center that Paul put at the center and you cannot understand Philippians if you don't pay attention to the relationship that Paul has with the Christians. And I'll also kind of give you a precursor a little bit. If I just ask you, what's the book of Philippians about? What would you say? What does everybody say? Like, joy. When I mentioned to Autumn and Chloe that we were going to study Philippians, they said, oh, that's the book about joy. I was, I was happy that they said that. Uh, they knew that. But I would tell you that if you only look at the concepts of joy in this book, 
and you don't look at why Paul has the joy, you will completely miss the important parts of this book for us. Think about why Paul has so much joy. All right, I think probably the last thing we have time for, what's Paul's situation? From chapter 1, what can we tell about his situation? It's not a good one. <laughs> it ain't good. All right, that was a decent summary, Alan. <laughs> Who else can tell us some more about that? Well, I said someone else. <laughs> you don't have to leave. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I'm, I wasn't telling him to leave. I just wanted to be clear. All right, so I, I like Alan's summary. It's not a good situation. What is the situation? There's like three or four points we could say about it. Some have already kind of been said, but let's be clear. He's in prison, and it seems like he's been in prison for a long time. He's in prison. It seems like he's been in prison for a long time. Some things we could use to infer that is like, he's managed to teach the whole Imperial Guard in the time that he's been there. And we also know from later in the book, also Caesar's household. So he's not only been busy, but it hasn't been a week, right? It's been a while. What else about Paul? Yeah, so what Michelle said is he's been there long enough that people knew that he needed supplies and encouragement and care, and they had time to send it. And let's remember, like, this was in the time where people walked as their primary means of travel. Sometimes they got on animals, and every now and then they got on a ship. So the fact that the brethren in Philippi, who were a great distance away, had time to know that he had a problem and time to send someone to care for it, Care for him tells you it's been a while. What else? The end of chapter, the last half of chapter one. Yeah, so he's thinking about whether he lives or dies. And I want to, I think we should kind of separate some of this into two separate points because I think they're, I think it's important to not just put them together. So one, what is he saying he wants? What's he looking forward to? Christ. He wants to be with Christ. At his core, he believes it would be better for him to die and go and be with Christ. But what? What's the second point? Of that situation. It's better for them that he stays. It's better for them that he stays. And so he does. So understanding those two separate concepts, I think, is important because um, uh, Karen and I were talking about this uh, last week. And the, the idea that you can long for heaven. And to be with Christ, but also want to be with your brethren and serve them, those are not conflicting ideas. I think sometimes we can get the idea that if you long for heaven, you just you don't you don't like anything on earth, you don't want to be on earth, you're just ready to go. And instead, it's an intense longing desire that he has to be with Christ. But he does not want to give up on his brethren. He wants to serve them more. 
Danny. And there's two relationships, you can't separate them, and they're, they're all tied together, actually, right? Because Christ is, the, is the, the relationship that brings Paul and those brethren together. All right, next week we're going to kind of finish out um, some intro. Um, so if you want to spend some time reading this week, read the, read the book, um, and we're going to focus on, like, what do we learn about Paul the brethren he's writing to, the issues they face, those sorts of things. Uh, and we'll do some more of this next week. Thank you all.